Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, University of Toronto researcher William O'Connell looks at cryptocurrency and asks for more oversight on what, for many, is still a Wild West show. Financial advisor Bridget Casey thinks cash gifts in early adulthood are a smart financial move for parents and kids. And certified public accountant Nelson So looks at the facts and avoids the emotion in the ongoing debate of to rent or buy. So, let's get started. Here's an excerpt from an article written by our next guest. Until very recently, crypto exchanges were all the rage. They had A-list celebrity spokespeople, stadium naming rights, and public endorsements by major politicians. Crypto exchange companies market themselves as platforms for users to buy and sell crypto. But they also function like stockbrokers. And more concerningly, their core business models quite closely resemble banking. This article is at theconversation.com. It's entitled, Crypto Platforms Say They're Exchanges, But They're More Like Banks. The author of this piece is a PhD candidate from the University of Toronto, William O'Connell, joining us to talk more about crypto platforms. Mr. O'Connell, William, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's great to have you with us. It's a terrific article, but uh, for those uh, who are, well, it's early in the morning here, William. So uh, just yeah. give us give us a, the, 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 the thumbnail sketch, if you will, on crypto and why all of a sudden it has lost so much popularity to say nothing of value. Right. So there was a lot of hype about cryptocurrency um, beginning, you know, it's kind of come in waves, but uh, particularly in 2021, there was a lot of hype and uh, a huge spike in the price of Bitcoin, Ethereum, some other major cryptocurrencies. As, uh, you know, started to be more news articles about this, and everyday people started to jump on the bandwagon, hoping to uh, to make a bit of extra money. The problem is that there isn't really a whole lot of inherent value in cryptocurrency. There's not a whole lot of places where you can actually use cryptocurrency to buy and sell things, but essentially purely speculative at this point. Right. So there's a bit of a bubble. Price crashed. Price of Bitcoin has, has collapsed quite a bit in the last uh, three or four months to other cryptocurrencies. And the result is that some high-profile exchange platforms, um, Celsius Network, Voyager Digital, um, have gone bankrupt. And what we're now learning um, in the wake of these bankruptcies is that many of these companies took customer money, pulled it together, and used it to make massive, very, very risky loans to other cryptocurrency firms. Oh. And the result is that their customers are now learning that their money was not, in fact, held separately in safe or secure accounts. It was, in fact, loans they were providing to these companies, and now they're on the hook for the loan. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of what you've just told us, William, is going to validate a lot of people's apprehensions about crypto. It sort of boils down in the minds of many, certainly not all, but in the minds of many, uh, to, it's kind of a Wild West show. It's kind of a, you know, every man for himself, and, you know, you go for it, and you, 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 it's, it really is an unregulated area of the economy, unlike banks and others which have deposit insurance and and regulatory supervisory agencies is it as wild as wild uh, west show as uh, some people think it is yeah absolutely so part of the reason is the anonymity within crypto markets makes it very difficult to verify 
who actually owns which accounts at any one point in time. Okay. It also creates an issue for regulators where it's not necessarily clear where particular assets are located. So many of these exchanges, for example, are might be incorporated in one particular state in the U.S., but many of their users might be using it from all across the world. And this makes it very difficult for regulators to do their jobs. Um, another issue is that many of these companies will do some of their accounting in cryptocurrencies, which are quite volatile mm-hmm. and make it very, very difficult for users or investors to actually verify how much money any of these companies have at any one particular point in time. Um, so there are some minimal regulations in the market, but um, the nature and the anonymity of, uh, of blockchain technology makes it very, very difficult for traditional regulators to regulate them in the way that they regulate uh, regular financial companies. Sure. And that's, of course, what's making millions of potential customers just stay away because it's just too unnerving for them. But your, 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 the title of your article, William, is Crypto Platforms Say They're Exchanges, But They're More Like Banks. How so? Yeah, so many of these um, many of these companies, Celsius, um, Voyager Digital, they marketed themselves as places where users could sign up for an account, deposit their own, you know, Canadian dollars, U.S. dollars, and use it to buy and sell cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and other sort of related assets. Okay. And the way these apps appeared is similar to other types of stockbroking apps, so things like TD Ameritrade. The difference, though, is that for those types of brokers, you know, Ameritrade, Wealthsimple, your money is held in a separate account. And if the firm, the brokerage firm, goes bankrupt, you are the legal owner of those assets. And, you know, you simply transfer your account to a different broker. Okay. But with these crypto exchanges, um, if you actually read the terms and conditions, they clarify that your money is not being held in a separate account under your name. It's, in fact, being held in what's called a custody wallet. And those companies claim that they're pooling these custody wallets together. So if you go to withdraw your money, they will pay you out of the pool. But much like banks, when you deposit your money in a bank, it goes into a pool and, you know, you get paid out from the pool when you withdraw cash. Sure. But your bank makes the assumption that not everybody is going to pull their money out at any one particular point in time, um, which is why we have deposit insurance. Everybody goes to the bank, pulls their money out, then the bank goes bankrupt. So when crypto prices crashed, many users tried to pull their money out of, uh, of these exchanges. Of course. The assumption that their money was being held in their own accounts. What they found out was that these companies were not holding a sufficient amount of assets in order to actually pay out all of their customers at any one time. So they start getting a large volume of withdrawals. They have to suspend withdrawals and eventually declare bankruptcy, much like a traditional you know, 1930s style bank run. Interesting stuff. So you propose the future of decentralized finance, and you talk about um, the the uh, uh, the possibility of a greater regulation. You're a political science PhD student. You're, you're focusing in on the politics of finance and financial policy making. So what's the recommendation? Bottom line for you, if you if you had a moment with the finance department and and could establish a parameter or two, what would you do? Well, I think there's two important regulations. So one of them is that crypto exchanges, I think, need to be regulated very clearly as stockbrokers. Okay. They need to be regulated much the same way that Wealthsimple, TD Ameritrade, or some of the other familiar companies we have. And what that means is that they need to clearly state that they keep customer assets in separate, separated accounts that are legally under the property of those clients 
so that in the event these exchanges go bankrupt, those customers' assets are safe and they can be transferred to a different exchange platform. So that's the one thing. The other thing is that many crypto assets um, in Canada and the United States are treated as commodities, so similar to trading gold or oil. And there are far fewer regulations around commodities trading than securities trading, so things like stocks. Um, So designating crypto assets as similar to holding shares in a company, I think would be quite helpful as there are much more rigorous reporting requirements. Publicly traded companies have to give standardized reporting on their assets, their liabilities, and I think that that designation would ensure that there's a lot more information available to the public to make informed decisions. Ah, so uh, what do you sense as an appetite by the policy on the part of the policymakers to move uh, on any of these? Um, I think there is a sense. It's incredibly complicated, as I said, because of all the kind of movement across jurisdictions, and especially in Canada, because we don't have one securities regulator. Each province has its own separate securities agency, and there's been some difficulty trying to coordinate things across provincial borders. Um, But there is certainly appetite. I mean, um, from my understanding, from talking to people in regulatory circles, there's a lot of appetite for bringing these uh, these exchanges and these assets under regulation. It's just not entirely clear uh, how that will be done at this particular point in time and whether that will require a, a larger degree of international cooperation than maybe other areas of, of financial services. Okay. Uh, William, do you think, final questions, you know, we're grateful for your time on the weekend. Uh, do you sense any uh, possibility that this could elevate to, to the point of some kind of election issue? Uh, Mr. Poilievre, for example, is, has been known to promote uh, uh, cryptocurrencies in some of his speeches uh, and has received more than a little flack for it. Uh, what about this in terms of moving... Uh, or at least the, a popular movement towards more regulation, demand by the voters. Yeah, well, I think it's quite telling that uh, Mr. Polyev hasn't, uh, hasn't mentioned cryptocurrency in the last few months. It's true. Um, now that uh, now the prices have been declining quite a bit. Uh, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, um, this is still a relatively niche issue. There are, is a lot of money going around. A lot of everyday people have, have lost quite a bit of money. Yeah. Um, but it's by no means a large slice of the Canadian population that's, uh, that's heavily involved here. So I'm not sure how much demand there will be for for regulation um, from individual um, individual people, but I do know that the Bank of Canada is experimenting with the possibility of of digital currencies, looking into some of this regulation. And I think if there are any more high profile bankruptcies or anything of that nature, then we might uh, we might start to see more serious calls from the public. Out of necessity, uh, if nothing else. Yeah, crypto platforms say they're exchanges, but they're more like banks. It's a really good read at theconversation.com, written by our guest William O'Connell from the University of Toronto. William, thanks so much for this great article. We do appreciate your time, too. Yeah, thank you for having me, sir. Bridget Casey is our next guest. She is the award-winning entrepreneur behind Money After Graduation, a financial literacy website dedicated to helping 20- and 30-somethings get rich. She's also the author of a piece at the Globe and Mail where she's a personal finance columnist entitled Forget the Inheritance, Why Cash Gifts in Early Adulthood Are a Smart Financial Move for Parents and kids. Bridget Casey joins us from Calgary. Bridget, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a, it's a return visit. You and I haven't talked on the radio for a long time, but uh, and pandemic, I guess it's pre-pandemic last time you and I had a conversation on the air. Uh, so how have the last couple of years been for you? Um, I mean, for me, they've been great. I'm an investor in the stock market and 
cryptocurrency and I managed to buy a home. So I've had a good pandemic. <laughs> well, good for you. And, f- and money after graduation has also taken off successfully for you as well. Yeah, business is booming, I think, because a lot of young people are struggling financially and they're looking for good financial advice. And financial literacy is something that we sadly are lacking in this country, partly because we don't teach it in school, do we, Bridget? No, but if they did, then I'd be out of a job. Well, I suppose you can look at it from that perspective because you're doing rather well. But let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the article you wrote in your uh, personal finance column in the Globe and Mail. Uh, This whole business of the bank of mom and dad. And in this market, we just had a conversation with Brian Rustin uh, here, Bridget, about 15 minutes ago. Brian is the COO of Century 21. And his latest numbers indicate, once again, Vancouver and this area, the lower mainland of British Columbia, is Canada's most expensive real estate market, full stop. So if you're trying to get into the housing game in this part of the world, it's it's a steep climb. And the bank of mom and dad really is the one that makes the difference in in the case of a lot of first-time home buyers. So you're suggesting more moms and dads forget the inheritance and get to giving that money out. Why? Yeah, I think distributing large cash gifts when your children are young adults will actually help to set them up financially for life rather than leaving them a large nest egg at the end. Because when you look at the lifespan in Canadi- in, of Canadians and when they have their children, when you're likely to pass away, your child might be in their 50s or 60s and nearing their own retirement where everyone likes to get a cash gift, but it won't have the same impact as it will if they receive it in their 20s or 30s or even 40s, when at that time, it can help pay off debt, it can help buy a home, it can help with childbearing costs and all those major expenses that happen when we're really young. Yeah, Bridget, why does it seem so radical to so so many people, the idea of actually sort of getting at it while you're still here to, uh, well, first of all, enjoy watching them spend their inheritance, which is something you don't get to do if you're not around, but there seems to be a certain degree of reluctance from some. What do you sense that to be about? I think there's a lot of concern that many parents are worried that they won't actually then have enough for their own retirement, particularly if they need expensive long-term care. But the beauty of giving cash gifts earlier is you can actually give much less. Giving $10,000 when your child is 30 is actually the monetary equivalent of giving them $100,000 30 years later. So you can give smaller gifts and then it actually makes it easier to plan your own retirement later because you don't have to leave anything. Right. Now, just now you're talking about this in the context of inheritance. Some parents would see that as a little too loosey goosey in terms of arrangements. They want some 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 discipline, some uh, setup, some parameters around the the exchange of of funds. So uh, gifting is one option. Sometimes they try to arrange some kind of interest free loan, for example, to attach some degree of responsibility to what would have been a gift. How about that approach? I mean, every family can do what feels is best for them. But I think if you teach your children proper financial financial literacy and you raise them to be responsible adults, you shouldn't necessarily be worrying that they're going to be careless with money. I also think there's a benefit to giving money young when you can watch how they're spending it that maybe if they know you're looking at them and judging how they use it, they might be reluctant to be uh, silly or irresponsible with it. Interesting. Now, you uh, deal with a lot of 20 and 30-year-olds as uh, founder of Money After Graduation. The recipients of 
have said, uh, munificence from the parents. Uh, what are they telling you about uh, being a little more sensitive because, well, it's actually their money and they're kind of watching what we're doing with it? So I've gotten tons of DMs since this article went viral and the kids who have received these gifts from their parents were honestly so grateful and they talked about how much it set them up for life and they really appreciated that their parents did that. Whereas others that see their parents sitting on very large multi-million dollar nest eggs with multiple houses while they're struggling in student loan debt, can't get a foothold in the real estate market, it actually creates some tension between the family dynamic. Interesting, because, you know, you you take a look at, uh, and I'm thinking of the Bill Gates example, for example. He has adult children now and has made a very public point of saying they're not going to get all my loot. We're going to give most of our stuff away philanthropically, but the kids aren't going to get gobs of money. That's not the way this is set up. That's not the way they've been brought up. So there's a little of that, too, right? Not giving gobs of money and not providing your children the best way to establish their financial future, I think, are different methods. While Bill Gates might not give them his billions of dollars, he still has set them up very comfortably with tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Their post-secondary was paid for. All their housing is taken care of. So it's one thing to say, like, I'm not going to make them billionaires, but it's quite another to say every other advantage that they need in life has been completely taken care of. So they are free to make their own wealth. And I think that's how parents have to think about it with their children. You're really essentially moving obstacles, removing obstacles and barriers that will let your children build their own financial security in their future. And I suppose part of it too, Bridget, is the fact that parents in retrospect realize, you know, my child hasn't been brought up or educated as 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 cleanly or as completely, rather, in terms of financial literacy as he or she could be. And now all of a sudden they're in charge of this money and uh, they may not handle it well. well. Let's flip the coin and talk to you about what young people who come to you uh, seeking guidance, uh, what is their biggest uh, falling down point in terms of financial literacy? Where do they make their biggest mistakes? Honestly, the biggest mistake people do is they rush into decisions. Like they either rush into buying a home when it's not uh, financially a good idea for them. They rush into investments without doing research. I really wish everyone would just take a little bit more time to learn and run the numbers before they jump into any decision because that can make hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference in their lifetime. And uh, does the fact that it's coming as a gift from parents, does that in some cases help to slow down the process and maybe not, maybe slow the rush down to a quick walk? It depends how the parents are dispersing the gifts. If the parents are giving it with uh, strings attached, saying like this has to be used for a house down payment or this has to be used for something else, then I think it actually makes young people rush more into those financial decisions. Interesting. I know the other apprehension on the part of parents, of course, is because a lot of this stuff comes down at, a, at an occasion. Someone gets married. Well, here's a here's a good whack of dough. Go buy yourselves a house. Well, not all of those work out. Statistics Canada will tell you that 50% of marriages end in divorce. So a lot of this stuff can go sideways, Bridget, and that has moms and dads a little worried about this kind of stuff because if it goes sideways so does the gift yes so there's interesting applications of that if you are gifting your child a large financial gift you do want to do it before they are married and you do want to make sure that they put it in their own investments 
if you gift it after marriage and they use it for something like a down payment on the marital home, uh-huh. then in that case, it will be considered joint property. But you can, of course, sit down with a lawyer before you get married, which you absolutely should do to craft a prenup that lays out many of these things. But yeah, when it comes to cash financial gifts, if it's a down payment for the marital marital home, it is going to belong to both partners. Exactly. Okay. So uh, you just made a great point, sitting down with a lawyer. And uh, they don't cost an arm and a leg, especially if you only want 15 minutes of their time. And it should only take you 15 minutes to sit down with someone who knows what's going on to tell you how to properly go through the process of gifting money to whoever you choose to give it to. Because there are legal issues attached to sums of money, plain and simple, right? Exactly. And I don't think you might need more than 15 minutes with a lawyer, but I think even spending say $1,000 or $2,000 to draw up an agreement that protects your wealth, if that's going to protect hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of dollars in a home, then it's, it's worth spending that money. Right. And I I entitled uh, this segment with you, the bank of mom and dad, not a risk-free zone. And it isn't, Bridget, is it? That's that's totally true. I think parents are reluctant to let go of their wealth, so they will have lots of stipulations about how it will be spent. And, I mean, young people have to take really good care and responsibility because at the end of the day, that still did take a lifetime to build up that financial asset, and it needs to be respected. Indeed it does. Bridget, great to have you back on the show. It's been far too long, and let's not wait three more years before we do it again, okay? (laughs) Thank you for having me. As we might have expected, their new numbers show British Columbia and specifically the lower mainland of Vancouver as Canada's most expensive market, in which many people are still debating the, uh, well, it's been around for a while, renting or buying. Let's check some of the facts. And this morning, we're very lucky to have Nelson So with us. Mr. So is the co-author of a book called Life Literacy. He is a certified public accountant, he's a financial literacy expert, and he is the co-founder of S. FSQ Consulting. Nelson, so good morning. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sterling. Well, it's good to have you with us, Nelson. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the the facts involved in, in renting versus buying. Because when you cut to the chase and you really boil it down, there's a lot of emotion in the discussion and sometimes to the to the neglect of a lot of obvious facts. So let's zoom in on the facts as best we can this morning, Nelson, please. Sounds good. Yeah, you know, based on the recent um, housing survey released by CPA Canada, we found that 50% of Canadians who do do not currently own a home believe that it's unlikely they'll ever be able to purchase one. I believe that. And uh, I would imagine there's a certain very obvious age group attached to that group with that sentiment. Definitely. And that's going to be more in the millennial to uh, Gen Zers that are up and coming. Right. And we had a great conversation in our last hour with Bridget Casey in Calgary, Nelson, about the bank of mom and dad and the whole notion of giving gifts to your children while you're still around to enjoy them, uh, enjoy your their gifts and that sort of thing. Not risk free, but uh, uh, the kind of thing that in a market like Vancouver and you live here, too, uh, it really does. It's a difference maker, isn't it? Totally. You know what? Based on that survey, um, 90% of people in BC specifically say that the hardest part about homeownership is affording the down payment. 
Right. And so let's talk about that if we can, because with minus the bank of mom and dad's gifting and that big push that that gives you, uh, you have to make a lot of money to, uh, to be able to afford a home in Vancouver, regardless of size. So let's talk about packaging up that down payment minus the bank of mom and dad, Nelson. Absolutely. Let's go right into maybe some financial literacy tips that people Perfect. can take with them. Um, number one, you know, spend within your means. So it's really important for people to look at their monthly spending and determine, you know, cash flow. How much am I making versus how much am I spending? And easier said than done, but we have to spend less than we earn. Well, it's also surprising when you sit down and itemize stuff like a cup of coffee here and, uh, you know, a magazine there or whatever. Uh, when you do a monthly tally on those incidentals, the numbers can sometimes be pretty eye-popping, can't they? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Sterling, there's this book called The Latte Factor um, by David Bach, and he talks about this latte factor, which is buying a $5 coffee every day and the impact of that when it's extrapolated over a long period of time. Now, the latte factor is not just for coffee. It's for everything in life. Sure, like it's a lottery indeed. ticket or whatever it may be, right? Totally. Subscriptions, everything like that. Interesting. And uh, so many of us, I mean, there's, there's just that level of activity on the periphery. It's so common and so, uh, so normal, in quotes, we don't even notice it much, do we? Exactly. And this is why it's so important that um, we need to review our bank statements, our credit card statements every month to know where our money is going. So we don't spend time looking for it when we really need it the most. What about uh, carrying debt, uh, Nelson? Because most people do. Most people have a credit card out of necessity for whatever reason. And every now and then, especially in times when wages aren't keeping up with inflation, people are leaning on their credit cards more often than they're even accustomed to and starting to run up some numbers. And the interest rates are just staggering, aren't they? Absolutely. Credit card debt is probably one of the worst types of debt we can take on, just given the high interest rates. Um, And I think one of the misconceptions with using credit cards is the terminology on our statements when it says minimum payment due. Right. I think that people misunderstand that and they think that that's all that they need to pay. But the truth is you need to pay the full balance in full and on time in order to not have any interest charges. Right. But of course, even if it's not possible to pay the full balance because times can get ahead of you, uh, make as big a payment as you can. The, the minimum payment is only a guideline. It's, it is what it says. It's the minimum payment you must make at least X. But that's not, that's not the rule. You can go well beyond that, can't you? Totally. And I um, always encourage people to contribute as much as they can. If they can't afford to pay their credit cards in full due to circumstances, understand that. Contribute as much as you possibly can to draw that debt down. Uh, we, you talk to a lot of people about financial literacy. Brid- Bridget talked to us a little bit about it. And I, I asked her a question. I'd like to ask you almost identically, Nelson, when you're talking with younger people, young consumers and, and people in the workplace trying to get into the housing game and just trying to set out a life plan and all the rest of it and, and discover the limited degree of financial literacy involved. What do you find to be the most common mistakes young people make? That's a really good question. Um, I think that one of the most common mistakes that people make is kind of what we alluded to earlier is not really monitoring their cash flow. So when we look at expenses and how much people are spending every month, you know, like you said earlier, coffee here, coffee, coffee there, or shopping, online shopping, it's really easy now with one-click pay. Um, it's really, really important that people have a budget in place 
and they're really aware and intentional of where their money is going. It probably wouldn't surprise you as a certified public accountant, Nelson, that uh, we're starting to see an uptick in declaration of bankruptcies in the wake of these rising in interest rate times. It's not where it was pre-pandemic, but it is noticeable. And that's not a good thing to start noticing, is it? Definitely not. Um, As interest rates are going up, you know, loans and mortgages are getting more expensive. Um, It's getting harder to get larger loans. And with the housing prices going up, it makes people feel like they're forced to purchase into um, a high price at a high interest rate just to get in the market. And that can put a lot of people in a bad financial situation. So, you know, when it comes to renting, uh, you know, a lot of renting enables people to make alternative investments with the money that would have otherwise gone into monthly mortgage payments. You don't have to foot the bill for unexpected costs or special levies or whatever. Uh, there's a little more certainty to it there. You'll get a, a rental increase typically per year. But aside from that, there's a lot of certainty certainty there. So there, the renting is, uh, is, a, is a viable option for a lot of people, and yet it has so much negativity attached to it. Talk to us a little bit about all of that. Yes, I mean, that's a really good a hot topic, let's just say, renting versus buying. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would say that renting is not as bad as people, you know, think of it or they perceive it to be. Um, renting is great because if you can't afford home ownership in, say, downtown Vancouver, where prices might be completely out of reach um, for you to, to purchase in, you could potentially rent and achieve that lifestyle that matches with what you need at this point in your life. Well, and again, we, we, you know, we've, we've seen this in other parts of the world. Europeans, young Europeans a couple of generations ago decided life's too short. Uh, Europe's too expensive. We're going to rent and have some fun. And there's nothing wrong with that choice. I agree. And I think that people who are in that boat, um, it's really important to assess your financial goals and make sure that even though you're renting and and perhaps paying less than a mortgage, that you're squirreling away money um, every month for your financial goals, whether that be a down payment, a vacation or whatever that is. And you can suffer the slings and arrows of being told, hey, come on, you're being really dumb here. You're paying somebody else's mortgage. How foolish is that? Well, it's not foolish. It's a perfect arrangement for me. I'm renting and happy to do so, right? You do get sneered at from time to time, though, don't you? Well, Sterling, it's called personal finance for that reason, right? It's personal. Exactly. Now, what do you counsel young people, Nelson, who come to you looking for some kind of organizations, putting together some kind of financial plan that, you know, they can live with and long horizon? You know, this here's the ultimate goal, and here are we, and it's going to take us a while. So when you start organizing a long-term financial plan, what do you suggest the goals are? Yeah, I think it's important to, to figure out one is your life goals. Like if people are looking to have a family or if they're looking to purchase a home, like really put those in the forefront of your mind, because every time you make a financial decision, it's going to impact your long term goals. Right. And there's also a social cost, isn't there? Because in Canada, particularly, there's a culture of home ownership that is, uh, in, in many cases, especially in overpriced markets like Vancouver and Toronto, it's, uh, it's a head scratcher in many cases. And yet it's very firmly entrenched, isn't it? It totally is, yes. So, uh, uh, you know, to avoid uh, the, uh, I guess, the, the arguments that come along with being with choosing the rental option, uh, that there, as there is in some cases, you're going to get some static. But on the other hand, you're also going to have, chances are, more money than someone your same age paying the mortgage payments because they're condo fees and insurance and all the rest of that stuff that, that never gets talked about either, right? 
Correct. And you know what? The um, ability to afford paying for renovations and property taxes, what like 80%, 86% of BC homeowners um, feel that is the biggest pinch. Which is keeping up with the tax tab every year. Correct. Yes. Interesting. And of course, as a renter, that's just not on your radar, is it? Well, it's one of the luxuries of being a renter is you don't have to worry about um, things like strata fees and annual property taxes and other levies. Let's uh, talk about because you uh, are a financial literacy expert with the Certified Public Accountants of Canada, Nelson. You do good work as in addition to being in private practice. Can you recommend a website to our listeners this morning where they can go and, and carry on or find out more in this renting versus buying, more fact-checking to get some more ammunition for whatever choice they decide on? Definitely. Um, the CPA Canada website actually has a lot of uh, free financial literacy tips, uh, articles, blogs, um, even some free workshops and sessions that people can attend um, for all stages of life. Okay, so just go to the CPA, uh, Google CPA uh, literacy and off you go, right? CPA Canada, that's correct. CPA Canada, financial literacy, and boom, you're on their website. Nelson So is the co-author of Life Literacy. He's the founder of FSQ Consulting, and he's a financial literacy expert. Nice to have found you, Nelson. We will definitely talk again, sir. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.